Good morning. I'm Katie Eller. I'm on the Women Shepherding team here at Cotswold. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. Um, and I'm just going to read our passage. Luckily, of all the Exodus ones, I probably got the shortest. <laughs> um, it's a reading from Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters underneath the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Well, good morning. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you yet, I'm Mark Upton. I'm the pastor of City Impact at Hope, and so uh, I now get the privilege of rotating around to the different sites. I was at South End two weeks ago. I'll be at OP next week, and I get to be with you guys today. Uh, and I want to make you aware of kind of what I'm doing. Uh, my new job at Hope is to identify, uh, equip, and deploy people at the three Hope sites who want to be part of what God's doing in the city. And so, in particular, here at uh, Cotswold, I'm helping form a mercy team uh, for you guys uh, that will help figure out what your gifts are that your neighbors need and helping you connect with ministries in this area that are actively pursuing your neighbors in practical ways. So, uh, if you haven't seen on the back of your bulletin, there's an announcement about that, and there's a QR code where you can tell us what you do. And you may think, like, I don't have any real talent, I'm not doing anything great. Uh, it can be anything. Um, we had someone at South End um, who said, well, you know, I really like to make cakes. And uh, so we were like, great. Well, we have a ministry here on Thursday nights to teen moms, um, and we would love for you to make cakes celebrating the birth of their kids um, to dignify them. And so it, it can be literally anything. So I'd encourage you to pray about and uh, to participate in uh, what the Mercy Team is doing here. And to that end, let me pray for us uh, before we look at this uh, scripture together today. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning because of your great faithfulness to us. And uh, we ask, uh, Lord, uh, for the privilege of being part of what you're doing, um, both here at Hope Cotswold and in the world. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would give us uh, your wisdom, your love, and your eyes to see uh, the needs of our neighbors through the lens of our own need of grace. Um, we pray that now as we open your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would be merciful to us, that you would tell us uh, all the ways in which uh, the world and our flesh and the devil are trying to deceive us, and that you would set us free uh, so that as your uh, grateful people, we can be uh, extenders of your mercy in the world. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, uh, if you're just joining us today, this summer uh, we're going through the Ten Commandments. We just wrapped up a series on Moses' life from Exodus and Deuteronomy, but we only got to do one sermon on the Ten Commandments, and we felt like that was, uh, that was not sufficient. So uh, we're going to go back and just take each of them one at a time. And as Katie uh, just read for us, um, today we're looking at the second commandment. Now, to understand what God's good intent for us is in this commandment and to rightly apply it to our lives, we need to consider how it's different than the first commandment. Uh, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment is, do not make for yourself an idol. Um, our 
uh, old, uh, old Providence pastor uh, Trip Smith uh, at the sermon meeting this week perfectly summarized the differences between the first and the second commandment when he put it this way. He said, the first commandment tells us not to make something else into God. The second commandment tells us not to make God into something else. Okay, I'll say that again because it's important to understand this distinction. The first commandment tells us not to make something else into God. The second commandment tells us not to make God into something else. What God is concerned about in the second commandment is our proclivity to turn him into a smaller version of himself, a caricature of himself, to make him kind of a pocket-sized God that we can carry around with us and rub for luck or for whatever we want. What we essentially do with God when we do this, when we make an idol out of him, is we shrink him down by making him a caricature of himself. Well, what's a caricature? Um, the 17th century satirist Max Beerbohm defines a caricature this way. He says, it, the most perfect caricature is that which on a small surface with the simplest means most accurately exaggerates to the highest point the peculiarities of a person at his mo most characteristic moment in the most beautiful manner. All right? And this is what editorial cartoonists do. It's a form of satire. So Kevin Sires, who is the Charlotte Observer editorial cartoonist, Pulitzer Prize winning, here's one of his caricatures, okay? This was a recent one he did with uh, Joe Biden and um, Mitch, uh, whose name just dropped out of my head. Thank you. And so what he has done, he's taken the peculiarity of Mitch's eyes, right, and turned them into his defining characteristic, right? That's what a caricature is. And so, as I explained, the last week we addressed the first tendency, right, in idols with the first commandment, which is when we make something else into God. And we all have a tendency to do this. We all have a tendency to ask created things like our job or our diet or our money to do for us what only God can really do. And in doing that, we're asking something else to be God, okay? Well, there's a second way that we do this, and that is that we make God into something else. We create a caricature of God himself. And what we do is we pick the aspect of God's person that makes the most sense to us culturally or personally, and we exaggerate that to its highest point at its most characteristic moment to the exclusion of everything else about him. Hence the quote that we put on the front of your bulletin by Voltaire, right? Voltaire said, In the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. And this is the very commandment that the people of God were breaking when Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments in his hand in the first place. We read about it in our series on Moses from Exodus 32, where we read this. When the people of God saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said to him, Make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. 
Aaron replied, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into the image of a calf. But they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement, There will be a festival to Yahweh, the Lord, tomorrow. Early the next morning they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once, for the people you brought from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them, and they have made for themselves an image of a calf. They bowed down to it and sacrificed it and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, the question I want us to think about is, why did Aaron do this? He was Moses' number two guy. He was present during all of his conversations with Pharaoh, during all of his miracles. Why would he do this at this moment? Well, the answer is, Aaron is a people pleaser. Aaron is a coward. He was determined to save his own skin. He felt in danger in this moment. Why? Well, because he was experiencing immense pressure from the crowd of people who had followed Moses out of Egypt for political freedoms, right? They wanted to get out of slavery in Egypt, so they went with him. But once he was gone, what it revealed is they hadn't actually bought into the spiritual truths that God was revealing through him. And so instead of being Moses, God's chosen leader for us, he became that guy Moses. He just became some other guy to them. And so Aaron gave in, and he provided the people with the false image of God they craved. But why a calf? Um, Well, at this moment, the Israelites were between Egypt and and Canaan. And in both places, they had a bull god. Uh, In her book, Ten Words to Live By, Jen Wilkins notes this, one of the principal deities of Egypt was the bull god Apis. And the supreme head of the Canaanite pantheon was the bull god El. Bull worshiping was all the rage in the region. But it was a knobby-kneed calf, not a raging bull, that Aaron manufactures. When Aaron conceives of a Yahweh of his own imagining, he produces a non-threatening, approachable version of the principal gods of the surrounding pagans. And here's the kicker. So do we. Wilkin goes on, Anytime we take the attributes of the gods the world around us worships and apply them to God to make Him more palatable and less threatening, more accommodating and less thunderous, we produce a graven image. We whittle down His transcendence. We paint over His sovereignty. We chisel away at His omnipotence until He is a pet-like version of the terrible pagan God we would never be so foolish as to bow down to. But we still really want the blessings that our culture promotes that those gods give us. So, what are our cultural deities? What are the things that we worship and serve as a society 
that compete with God for first place in our hearts? Well, to answer that question, all we have to do is look downtown at our biggest buildings in the center of our city. And what do we discover? Well, we discover what we're dedicated to here in Charlotte. And we are dedicated to money. Charlotte worships wealth. Most of us are at least vaguely aware that Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So what do we do with that? Well, we make a graven image of God and we call it a prosperity gospel, right? That's what Charlotte has invented. We have come up with this. It began here back in the days of PTL a long time ago, which used to be where Forest Hill is now. We invented all of that stuff on television. That, that original recording studio for that TV show that spread the prosperity gospel all around the globe it was uh, started down in, in South Carolina, just across the border from Fort Mill, right there. So we come up with this. And what we do is we take God's promises and the miraculous stories of his provision, and we exaggerate them to the exclusion of Jesus' statements about man shall not live by bread alone, or about the Son of Man not having a place to lay his head, or about how we're not to forget the poor or the orphan or the widow, and we turn God into a divine piggy bank that we rub his belly with these manifestations that we're going to make about our future. And when we just manifest this, then certainly we're going to be blessed. Hashtag blessed. That's what we do. We're blessed, blessed, blessed. And we're going to Instagram about it. We're going to throw out all the videos about how God's blessed us. Now, others don't struggle with this, right? So where else can you look to figure out what it is that uh, tempts you to turn God into an idol? Well, maybe you could pick out that little idol we all carry around in our pocket. And stroke every day, right? Hello, hello, swipe. Let's let's look. Let's let's check, and and just see what does the algorithm think that you value. What does the algorithm conclude that you worship? And for many of us, it's political power. Like the Israelites, we started following God's leaders in our lives because we wanted freedom from Egypt but we have a hard time trusting God to protect us. And again, most of us know, right, that Pilate, when Jesus appeared before him, Jesus told him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my people would fight for it. And most of us know that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus in Matthew 26, 52 tells Peter, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. So, what kind of idols do we create then in the face of that? Well, we create some kind of political God who empowers us in our efforts to wield the sword of the state to protect our dreams for our families and to enforce our will on our neighbors. On the left, the version of God that they tend to gravitate toward is a God who is all about social justice, but sexual ethics, eh. 
And on the right, well, it's a God who tends to be all about sexual ethics, but social justice, eh. And so we shrink God down from a God who cares both about keeping the marriage bed pure and just wages. And we turn him into some truncated version of himself that fits neatly within one group's political platform or another. Or maybe you have one that's tailored to you. Um, Personally, the promise of the information age is my deity of choice, right? My my newsfeed is full of discoveries and new information, scientific this, scientific that. And why is that? Well, because the algorithm knows that I crave certainty, right? I really, really want to figure everything out so that I can master life, and how far has that gone in, in my own spiritual life? Well, I, I am very, very prone to turn God into a set of principles and ideas that I can master as a roadmap for how my life will be blessed. After all, I do have a master's in divinity. So, how idolatrous am I? So, what do I do? Well, um, in my idolatrous pursuits... I end up spending way more time on the internet trying to figure things out than I do praying. In that sense, I'm like the ethicist John Kavanaugh, who Brendan Manning talks about in his masterpiece, the book Ruthless Trust. He says this, Kavanaugh went to work at the house of the dying in Calcutta for three months. On the first morning there, he met with Mother Teresa, and she asked, what can I do for you? Kavanaugh asked her to pray for him. What do you want me to pray for, she asked. Pray that I will have clarity, he said. She answered firmly, no, I will not do that. When he asked her why, she said, clarity is the last thing you're clinging to and must let go of. When Kavanaugh commented that she always seemed to have clarity, that he longed for, she laughed and said, I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust, so I will pray that you will trust God. See, this is really what's behind all of our issues of idolatrous characterizations of God. Like the Israelites, when we find ourselves exposed and in the wilderness, and lacking leadership, we simply don't trust Him to love us and to do what's best for us enough to wait patiently for Him to reveal Himself as He is, rather than turning Him into the God we want Him to be. Leslie Newbigin says this in his book, A Proper Confidence. He says, If the place where we look for ultimate truth is in a story, and if, as is the case, we're still in the middle of the story, then it follows that we walk by faith and not by sight. If ultimate truth is sought in an idea or a formula or a set of timeless laws or principles, then we do not have to recognize the possibility that something totally unexpected may happen. So how does God respond? to our idolatrous caricatures of Him? Well, in a way most of us don't expect. With jealousy. Look again at verse 5. Do not bow in worship to them. 
do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Well, why does God get jealous when we create truncated versions of him which we worship and serve instead of him. Shouldn't he be grateful that we're calling on him at all? I mean, most people don't even think he exists. Well, let me ask you this question. If you were Mitch McConnell, how would you feel if your wife, Elaine, carried around this picture of you in her purse, right, and said, um, yeah, this is, this is my husband, Mitch, and then gave it to all of your kids and your grandkids, and they had it framed in their home. And, and they were like, yeah, you know, my dad's busy. He's in D.C. all the time, but this is him. You know, if you ever see him on TV, this is what he looks like. Well, if you loved them, you would be hurt and you would be upset, particularly if your grandkids started believing that's actually what you look like. Why? Because your great love for your wife and your children and your grandchildren would, want you, would cause you to want to be known by them for the person you really are, not for some media caricature of you. You would want to have personal relationships with your family members where they really get you. And the more convinced that they became that this image represented the real you, the more you would hate the false image of you they were holding on to. And that's exactly how God feels whenever we shrink him down to one of his attributes while ignoring another. Whenever we say, well, my God would never, or my God will always, we're probably worshiping and serving some idol instead of loving and obeying the God whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts and whose ways are beyond our figuring out. So what's the solution Well, God would have to remove that caricature by refusing to respond to his family's false worship of it for three or four generations. And then he'd have to reintroduce himself to his family in a form that they couldn't caricature. And so how did God do that? Well, he went silent for 400 years after revealing himself to the prophet Malachi. And then God became a human. And he appeared to one of his enemies, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this in Colossians 1, 15-17. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. And what exactly did Jesus of Nazareth reveal about God? What his life revealed is that God is exactly who he said he was to Moses when he said this in Exodus 34. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. 
maintaining faithful love to thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So how exactly did Jesus reveal that, right? How did he reveal that God is a gracious God? that he loves to forgive iniquity and sin, even the sin of idolatry. Well, he did it by allowing us to crucify him for blasphemy. Matthew 26 says, The high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See now, you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they answered, He deserves death. You see, in the person of Jesus, God refused to live up to his people's desire to control him politically or materially or through their religious systems to provide them with the best Roman life they wanted right now. And consequently, they killed him. Now, God should have destroyed mankind for murdering him. But instead, God used our idolatrous divine homicide as the means of revealing His true nature as a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and quick to forgive by rising from the dead and appearing to those who had abandoned Him, who had not believed Him, who had given in to all their fears, and even to one who was actively murdering people who were committed to the forward movement of the gospel. And that person became one of his apostles, the Apostle Paul, who went on in Colossians 1.18 to say this about Jesus, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that we might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile everything to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your mind as expressed in your evil actions, but now He has reconciled you through His physical body, through His death, to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before Him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So, how do we keep the second commandment? Well, Brendan Manning tells us how later in Ruthless Trust when he says this, Jesus alone reveals who God is. He is the source of all our information about transcendence, divinity. We cannot deduce anything about Jesus from what we think we know about God. However, we must deduce everything about God from what we know about Jesus. So, whenever we hear people online 
say, God hates this or God loves that. We need to stop for a second and replace the word God with Jesus and say to ourselves, well, does Jesus hate this? Does Jesus love that? If not, then you can know that you are dealing with an idolater who is trying to persuade you to worship and serve the caricature of God that they are pitching to you in an effort to win you to their earthly agenda. You're being indoctrinated. We can resist this idolatrous temptation by turning our eyes from them and the false version of God that they're selling us and fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Doing this changes us because we become like that which we adore. When you give your attention to things, you are formed by them. And so if you will fix your eyes on Jesus, you will become more and more in love with Him and then formed by Him. Hence our call to worship today. 1 John 3, 1-3, See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Why? Because we will see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. And so the great news of our passage today is simply this. The God who really exists loves you and wants to have a personal relationship with you. To make that possible, He took on flesh, and He dwelled down here on the planet in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the exact image of God, and you see Him in His most characteristic moment when we're killing Him for refusing to be the God we want while He's forgiving us for doing so. Which means nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Not even your idolatry, not even your anger or your hatred of God, not even your contempt or your fear. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's available to you in Christ. All we have to do is look to Him as the exact image of God, put our faith in Him, and if we do so, we will never be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You that You love us and that you came to seek and to save us because we were lost in our images of your Father that we had made and become captive to. Thank you that you are the exact image of your Father, and that as you said to Philip, if we have seen you, we have seen the Father. We pray now, Lord, that you would help us to fix our eyes on you, that we might look full in your wondrous face, and that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We ask this in your name. Amen.